1: Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, zooming in as per the new normal. But live and kicking in the studio are two very special guest hosts. First, Joining me again is writer, critic, man about town, and uh, the uh, owner of the finest snort, laugh, and show business, Stephen A. Russell. <laughs> oh, no, I feel like I have to do it on demand.
2: It'll, it'll turn up. Don't worry. It's coming.
1: <laughs> it'll come at some point. <laughs>
2: oh, oh, there we go. There you yeah, go. Yes.
1: <laughs> Inevitable. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautifully done. And making his primal screen debut is a man I've wanted to drag on here for a while, uh, but his busy schedule as a segment producer for Channel 10's The Project often stands in our way until now. Presenting writer, filmmaker, author, former co-host and co-creator of the cult hit movie show The Bazoura Project and the cult hit movie podcast Hell is for Hyphenates, which I co-hosted with him for five and a half years,
0: Lee Zachariah. Hi. I I, I feel like I need to snort or something just to get <laughs> in on this. like I was... You know, I'm not like, very competitive by nature. But I think to I...
2: give them all of your many, many, you know, that's accomplishments. So that's right. just... A lot of all
0: them right. are made up. But thank thank <laughs> you all for, for accepting the list of fictional uh, CV
1: entries. They are real shows. You can look them up online. Um, if you want to snort, there's a line on the table there for you. That's the way we do a triple R.
0: Triple R has um, not changed since I was last Yeah, there,
1: it's fully transpiring. <laughs> Lovely to have you here with us for this long-awaited Hell is for Hyphen, it's reunion of sorts. Um, <laughs> so we are going to be discussing this release, Aussie-directed Kate Shortland's Black Widow, which returns the Marvel Universe to cinemas for the first time in two years. And we thought we'd take this opportunity to shine our second spotlight on a studio. Exactly three months to the day after our Pixar Spotlight special, we're going to take a look back at the work of Marvel Studios going deep on two of our favourite MCU highlights, Shane Black's Iron Man 3 from 2013 and James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy from 2014. So let me set the table. It's 1993, 15 years since Richard Donner and his FX crew made us believe a man can fly with Superman the movie, and four years after Tim Burton pitted Michael Keaton versus Jack Nicholson in Batman. DC Comics and their arch rivals, Marvel Comics, had enjoyed success on TV, both primetime action dramas and Saturday morning cartoons, but DC ruled the big screen. Since the company, formerly known as Timely and Atlas, became Marvel Comics in 1961, the only Marvel characters who had ever gotten an actual movie, not double episodes of TV shows released to cinemas, were an anthropomorphic duck named Howard and Captain America in a low-budget, barely-released film where one of the Star Spangled Avengers' greatest powers seemed to be faking people out with a cough. Both Superman and Batman spawned successful enough sequels. Neither made as much as their predecessors. And Warner Brothers, who had owned DC since the 1970s, were in the process of prepping a third Batman film, albeit without Burton, who was turning his attention to the studio's first Superman movie since 1983's Superman 3. The woefully threadbare Superman 4 The Quest for Peace was a canon film's production. The Batman films had the biggest casts, biggest sets, and biggest budgets in town, and it looked like Superman would follow suit. Marvel, meanwhile, could only watch on in envy. Because across town, German film producer Bernd Eichinger had a problem. Without a relationship to a major studio like DC had with Warners, Marvel had sold sold off the film rights to their characters to apparently anyone with a checkbook during the 1980s, Canon had Spider-Man, 21st century pictures had crapped out the Captain America film, and go had snagged the rights to Marvel's first family, the Fantastic Four. But in 1992, after years shopping the film around to various studios with no result, Eichinger was about to lose the rights by year's end, unless he made a film quickly. And when you need to make a film quickly, who do you go to but B-movie super producer Roger Corman? Working for Corman's production company, a $1 million version of the Fantastic Four started filming three days before the deadline closed and was completed in mid-1993 in time for a summer release that never happened. Now, stories vary on what happened from here. Some say Eichingen never planned for the movie to be released, making it just to retain the rights in in the hope of launching a bigger budget version, which he did later with the uh, 2000s Fantastic Four films. Others say that Avi Arad, who had recently become president and CEO of Marvel's film division, was embarrassed by the film and paid Eichinger and and Corman off to bury it. Perhaps there's truth in both versions, but whatever happened, other than a solitary screening in May 1994, the Fantastic Four remains officially unreleased to this day, available only in bootleg versions. I mention all this because this feels like the rock-bottom flashpoint moment for Marvel. Avi Arad was the chief of Toy Biz, a toy company that had bought out Marvel Comics in the early 1990s with a plan to expand the merchandising and licensing possibilities, especially after Warner Brothers had everybody wearing the bat symbol throughout 1989 and 90. Marvel knew they had an endless roster of great characters and selling them off to anyone with a few bucks wasn't the right way to go. Arad started developing Spider-Man and the X-Men with mini-major Corolco pictures, the studio behind films like uh, Total Recall and Terminator 2, enticing directors like James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow. But it was in 1996, after Marvel divested their animated series interests, that Arad formally formed, officially formed Marvel Studios, intent on packaging cinematic adaptations of Marvel characters from the ground up, financing and producing their own films in-house, only selling them to studios to distribute. The production and first black superhero lead nearly two decades before Black Panther was 1998's Blade, starring Wesley Snipes as a day-walking vampire who hunted other creatures of the night which was a solid box office hit, spawning two sequels, one directed by an up-and-coming Guillermo del Toro and giving Snipes a career-defining role. But it was in 2000 with X-Men, produced by husband and wife team Lauren Shuler-Donner and the recently departed Richard Donner, and directed by Bryan Singer, that Avi Arad and Marvel Studios had their first blockbuster. Made for $75 million, it grossed just under $300 million worldwide, surprising everybody and truly kicking off the 21st century superhero blockbuster as we now know it. But it was a young man hired as an assistant to X-Men's other producer and Richard Donner's wife, Lauren Shula Donner, who would really shape Marvel's cinematic future. On the 1997 movie Volcano, executive produced by the Donners, Lauren hired a young man out of USC named Kevin Feige as her production assistant. When the Donners teamed with Avi Arad to produce X-Men, longtime comic book fanboy Feige made sure he showed his bosses just how much he loved and knew the X-Men and the Marvel Universe. His knowledge clearly impressed them, getting him promoted to assistant producer on the film, and once it was done, Arad hired faggy to be his right-hand man over at Marvel. After Arad and Marvel saw their next production, uh, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man in 2002, go into gigantic box office success, the genie had been released from the bottle, and Arad and faggy started thinking about who else Marvel could unleash into cinemas. Uh, Angley's divisive Hulk and Mark Steven Johnson's misguided Daredevil followed a, mere late, a year later to moderate box office returns, but the X-Men trained it well and truly left the station, which got Faggy thinking. The two X-films to date had shown that audiences had no problem with following superhero teams in movies. And though, although many major characters had been licensed out to other studios, the core members of the Avengers, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, Black Widow, and so on, were all still unclaimed. What if, dot, 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 in true Marvel fashion their film protagonists could cross over into each other's movies and then meet in an Avengers movie, just like their comic books did each and every month. In 2006, Arad left Marvel to form his own production company, ironically mostly producing non-MCU Marvel film productions like the Sony Spider-Verse films, leaving Fage solely in charge of Marvel Studios' creative direction. Faggy’s idea, a shared cinematic universe, would galvanise Marvel's cinematic output and revolutionise the major studio film business. Starting with Iron Man in 2008, a character few people outside of comic book fans had heard of, then emerging studio director Jon Favreau and then disgraced star Robert Downey Jr. redefined Tony Stark for the big screen, recreating an instantly iconic character who audiences took to their hearts in a big way, grossing nearly $600 worldwide. But it was the post-credits scene, something that would soon become the norm, with Samuel L. Jackson as shadowy shield agent Nick Fury inviting Stark to join the Avengers Initiative that a cinematic universe was born. Now, there's a lot more to the story before and since, but we simply don't have the time. So let's just cut to today. 13 years, 24 feature films, 10 television series, $22.5 million, uh, uh, billion US dollars in worldwide box office, uh, and nine of the 30 highest-grossing films of all time and an Oscar as a cherry on top. Marvel Studios is now the... Uh, Basically, yeah, it's it's a behemoth within a behemoth, um, owned by Disney. Um, so <laughs> we might skip it, Carl. Thanks. <laughs> just got a little note there, Lee and Stephen. What does Marvel mean to you?
0: First of all, can I just say that was an epic. Uh- origin story know, huge for comic book films. I'm surprised you weren't like it in 1895, the Lumiere brothers like really (laughs) go back to the origins. Um, But but I'm sorry, Stephen, you, you.
2: Do you know what? Like there, there is, there's a certain fashionable element of critique, you know, and I'm all for judging films in their own merit, but you know, there's, there's, there's been a lot of snoot about, Comic book movies—that's you know, without without doubt, it's very popular to hate on them, and I think there's something to be said for maybe. Well, look—you you could argue that perhaps we get too many of them, possibly, but I I look I I really enjoy the form. I I am a card-carrying geek, you know. I do I I actually read real-life you know comics, but I, I I think what Marvel have built is is something. If you can get past all of that, I think there's something really commendable about the the, the found family that they have spent. you know they 've spent twenty odd films building because all of these characters, as you say, they do they don't live in their own little silos which d c seems to be going for these days they 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 connect and they cross over and uh, whether or not you are a comic book fan, no one is immune to these pop culture, you know, titans. They're 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 a part of our, you know, the fabric of our lives. Whether it's Spider Man, you know, or, or 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 Thor, you know, from mythology on. And when 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 that when Black Widow popped up, when I got to see screening and Black Widow popped up on the screen again, I did not realize how much I had missed the blockbuster. And it and and I was, you know, in a room where people were screaming and applauding and losing their caboose. And it was amazing. It was a joy to be in there. And I think the world needs a little joy right now. So I'm I am super glad to have Marvel back.
0: Yeah, uh I, I know what you mean about that joy. I, I was a you know, I was just the same screening, I think, where we, you know, that that joy just erupted. But I think what I've been fascinated by with these films is that, you know, I'm not a comic book reader, uh, really, and so I didn't really, I'd never heard of Iron Man before the film had come out. I think what I'm fascinated by is that it, what, what Marvel has, has done is almost more seismic than when the Western came along or maybe even the musical. Like, it was a huge, huge change in in what could be achieved in film. And I always felt that... I think back to when I was a teenager and, and uh, you know, dating myself here, um, Independence Day came out. And there was that, you know, everyone went and saw that film because of the shot of the uh, White House getting blown up by Ooh. the spaceship. Yeah, that was, that was the thing that drew you into the cinema. If you want to see a spectacle like that, you have to buy a ticket. Yep. Nowadays, that's kind of the level of special effect you see in a paracetamol commercial. So films can't sell themselves on that anymore. And I feel what they had to do is get bigger in scale. And the only way you could do that is narratively and so you don't just have one franchise you have multiple franchises that connect and cross over into one another and I was fascinated by that so it was really I I was drawn to the narrative of it and whether they could pull it off and the idea of not following a character but a world in which multiple characters inhabit and I, I find that really fascinating and I think it's been a really interesting experiment um, that I want to come back to later when we talk about one of the other films we'll be talking
1: about. Mm. Well, shall we kick this off? Uh, listeners, please uh, join us in the cinema for our first film of the evening. Here's what's going to happen. Natasha, don't slouch. I'm not slouching. You're going to get the back hunch. Mm, listen to your mother. Oh my God. This... Um, ab- All listen. right, enough. All of you. I didn't say anything. That's not fair. Black Widow is the fourth feature film directed by Kate Shortland. Natasha Romanoff, uh, known as Black Widow, played by Scarlett Johansson, confronts the darker parts of her ledger when a dangerous conspiracy with ties to her past arises. Pursued by a force that will stop at nothing to bring her down, Natasha must deal with her history as a spy and the broken relationships left in her wake long before she became an Avenger. Stephen, I see you posing every time you uh, float down from the ceiling to take on a bunch of bad guys. Uh, what did you think? Can that, can oh, I, God, I am what? so
2: glad you picked that up because if there's, if there's probably my, I mean, between the clip you played, which is number two, my my favorite moment of the film is when Florence Pugh, who is this, you know, she's an amazing indie darling. So it's kind of really cool to see her bring her particular quirk to the marvel films and she does you know completely castigate black widow and just like she basically kind of cuts through the whole marvel you know mythology in a heartbeat by by pulling the ridiculous posies that all the superheroes do when they when you know when they're fighting and she's like how how what the, what are you doing and it is <laughs> ludicrous and I, and that's what I love about this film paul it's on so many levels it loves the genre it loves marvel but it's also real it's also full of the you know it has the confidence now to pierce its own bubble and that's why this film i think is one of the most gorgeous ones that marvel has done because it is the big action thriller it is a spy movie you know it, it, but it's also at its at its heart a completely daggy family comedy where you know you know Black Widow has d- rediscovered this fake family that she once had when they were all Russian spies from the Red Room and the first thing they do is just absolutely mercilessly rip the piss out of each other and it is beautiful and David Harbour, Rachel Wise. Scarlett Johansson and Florence Pugh are cinematic dynamite on screen <laughs>
0: together. It's
2: magnificent. What, what what did you think, Lee?
0: I, I really liked it, and I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Even though I enjoy all of these films, uh, I kind of felt there was a sense going into it that it had come a bit too late. Like it almost felt like an afterthought. Like, yeah, the the, the time to do this film would have been maybe five years ago, uh, and yet there even though there's little attempt made to tell us why it should be told now, like sometimes they try to find a reason, like, and now we're telling you this story that reveals something you couldn't possibly have known before, whatever. Um, it still, it didn't actually bother me when I was watching the film. Like I, it was still a blast. It was, uh it didn't do the sort of uh, the the thing of, oh, we have to tick off all these things from her origin story that we needed to know, you know, it actually told, a new and interesting story, despite being a prequel of sorts. I, I had a blast with it. It was surprisingly funny. I thought, I really thought David Harbour was going to be, you know, kind of the, the the funniest part of the film, and he was great. But Florence Pugh, like, who knew <laughs> that she, like, yeah, she is an indie darling. She does drama really well. I, I had no idea she was so funny. and I, I came away wanting to see. More films with her, like I want to, I want to spend more time with this character. You know,
2: have you seen fighting with my family? No, or, like she's really, she. You begin to see her comic chops in there. Okay. You know, away from the the kind of very austere Lady Macbeth or you know the the, the madness of Midsummer.
0: Um, yeah, it feels but, weird to see her out of but, period costume. <laughs> <laughs> But, but you see her
1: comic chops in Little Women as well.
0: You That's do. true, but it's not the kind of like the the, the, the quickiness that you expect from the Marvel mm. films. You kind of need that. Someone with an edge, someone who can, you know, you know the Robert Downey Jr. thing of being able to fire off comic lines, what used to be the, the domain of the sidekick is now something you expect from the hero. And so you need actors who can do that. And as much as I loved Florence Pugh beforehand, I didn't know that was a... a, a an arrow in her arsenal.
2: And what, you know, I really love as well that she she really encapsulates the idea that there's there's darkness in this story, right? Mm, yes. You know, both she and her, you know, found sister have gone through insane misogyny and trauma and violence. Mm. And yet they, it, it it was just such a beacon of hope, this film, to see not strong women who are un, un unaffected by this of course they're they're, they're you know it, it affects so much of their life and yet they are still able to persist mm-hmm. and to rise above and without letting go and and i think that was one of the beautiful things about setting this as a kind of family film you know in the sense that they have support from one another to 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 get yeah. through this and that gave it a lot more heart even than most it of did, the Marvel yeah. films,
0: and more heart than I was than I was anticipating. Mm. You know, you suddenly have a character. Oh, this character has this uh, family that you've never heard of. Kind of, I was a little resistant to the idea going mm. in, but yeah, they 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 sell it.
1: They really. And, and it's it's such it's interesting because yeah, because this it's been said like it's the first film of Marvel's fourth phase, but it could have been the last of the third phase. Like it could have been a. <laughs> a hang on, let me get ca- my
0: uh, spreadsheet. Out. <laughs> the one of the, one, the one.
1: <laughs> I'm could have been a kappa to the last. The party, you know. the first part. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> But I think the way this—I uh, think you're right, Stephen. There's a lot of darkness underlying this film, and I think one of the one of the major achievements of what, what Shortland's done here, and particularly given Shortland's previous career <laughs> yeah. as a maker of pretty heavy films, mm. that she, that she and the film never beat you over the head with it. No. There's a there's a you know there's a credit sequence that you know sees the girls kind of in you know sort of whisked up, you know sort of <laughs> to the to the red room, which is. You know, it, it has images that call to mind, you know, human trafficking and and, yep. and and all this sort of stuff. And but besides that, it never ever, you know, it never has the, it never really does the rah rah moment thing. It never sort of points to something and said, "This is the feminist moment." Like it's just, it just real, it just it's in this movie's bones. Yeah. And I think the way it all rolls out is is really beautifully done within the kind of spy movie, the the you know, the Mission Impossible spy movie and the family comedy. Yep. Dual frameworks and I tell
2: you yeah. what boys like it's the first time in a long time where I've I cried at two I literally just cried at two moments and the funniest thing was when I saw it again and I cried at the exact same two moments again I thought it's very rare that you're gonna like you know get me right there with a really, yeah. with two
1: quite you know powerful emotional beats. Yeah, there's there's one there's one moment and it's again due to our lady Florence Pugh that I that one moment in this that made me tear up. And there's only three Marvel movies that have made me tear up. And there the, you go. One of the others will be talking about it. Uh, Yeah, I, I have a theory about Florence Pugh just quickly that I, I think every twenty years an actor comes along and within their first ten films shows you a remarkable range and looks like they can literally do anything. It was Pacino in the seventies, Edward Norton in the nineties, Norton. And it's Florent Florence Pugh today. I, I remain astounded with every single film she does. Mm. But and
2: I throw Stewart in there. Can give me give me Christian Stewart. <laughs> Go on. Hang
0: on, I'll get the spreadsheet out of you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but David Harbour is
1: also wonderful and hilarious in this. He really um, steps up, you know, from Stranger Things to this. He's like. Wonderful. Mm. <laughs> as Russia's only super soldier. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much to like about this film. It's got a, a few middling responses, which I find a bit, I don't know. I, I I find a bit snarky. I think yep. I think this is a great time. I mean, the 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 uh, the final action set pieces are ridiculously over the top. But you know, you keep telling yourself this is a superhero film. Yeah. Um, even though they works. are mortals ostensibly.
2: And you know what, Paul? I think they work better here because yes, it's still a mess and noise of CG. However, one thing I really noticed that Kate did with this film is the choreography is. Far more visible. It's not that you know super million yes. cuts. You know I can see people fighting, and that is yeah. a big change for Marvel to have really good fight choreography in there.
0: Mm. Yeah,
2: yeah, this
1: spatial work is great.
0: I also mm. particularly enjoyed like when I think like which actor do I need who who can give me the vocal versatility of like. A foreign accent. I think of Ray Winstone, uh, and I and hearing Ray, <laughs> Ray Winstone uh, do a Russian accent was a treat. <laughs> <laughs> was it Russian? No, it was Southern. It was. Yeah, <laughs> R- yeah, yeah. R- that wasn't that Russia was... by way of the East End. Look,
2: it still suffers from the generic villain problem yeah. that Marvel just does not seem to get past. But I felt like the rest of the p- the parts were so imbued with joy and love and majesty that it didn't really matter mm. that the villain yeah. was a bit like, eh. also, And his scheme is truly terrifying.
0: Yeah, yeah it a, is. It's, it's a good yeah, one. Yeah, the scheme yeah.
2: itself is really scary. It's mm. thematically on point. And yeah. though you're right, it doesn't really point to, any, you know, it's not too tied in, but I did really like the placing straight after the Avengers have had a breakup, you know, after Civil War. Mm. It, that felt like a nice moment for this to fit.
0: That's a good point. Yeah, the, the the sense of family breaking up, and then re- mm. and then regaining that in some way. Yeah. yeah, kind of foreshadows. If you watch it in, I guess chronological order rather than narrative mm. order, it or will maybe flip that. Uh, yeah, you're right. That it does it does work well in in this spot.
1: And showing her the families can come back together. And yeah. I, My only question was, where's Julie Delpy?
0: Thank well, you. Thank yes. you. And Julian Bleach.
2: I did want <laughs> – I really did want that. But I think you did – you made a really good point there that it's telling a new story. So maybe it was good not to get too bogged down that. But it would have been nice to oh, have no, some. Oh, no, ta-
0: I take uh, Julie Delpy over a new story. Yeah, um, done. Yeah, so – so Same. Yeah, I, don't, I For, for those who don't, don't remember, in uh, the second Avengers film, there's a flashback to uh, – you know, Natasha in the Red Room. And they've clearly cast, you know, Julie Delpy from, you know, the Before Sunset trilogy as... Uh, this instructor with the, an eye to bring her back at some point. You don't cast Julie Delpy in a five-second role unless yeah. you're, you're setting up the pieces. And uh, a and great character actor, Julian Bleach, in there as well. And you're kind of expecting, well, this is their moment, right? But, yeah, I don't know. There's, maybe there just wasn't uh, a space for them. But I was hanging out for a return of those two. Yeah. Maybe, maybe yeah. there'll be another film. Who knows?
2: But Rachel Weisz was a pretty good
1: substitution. She was great. She was, <laughs> no, wonderful. she was
0: really good. At, yeah.
1: It's- um, so, Black Widow is now screening in cinemas or available on Disney Plus Premier Access. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on, on FM, FM digital, digital Online via the app. Yeah, yeah. You're back with Primal Screen on Triple R with Lee Zachariah, Stephen A. Russell, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. You go to bed, I come down here,
0: I do what I know. I tinker. Threat is imminent, and I have to protect the one thing that I can't live without. That's you. And my suits, they're... Uh,
2: Machines.
0: They're part of me.
2: A distraction.
1: Maybe. Iron Man 3 from 2013 is the second feature film directed by Shane Black. When Tony Stark, played by Robert Downey Jr., finds his world torn apart by a formidable terrorist called the Mandarin, played by Ben Kingsley, he starts an odyssey of rebuilding and retribution. And that is only the tip of the iceberg. Lee, this was your pick for the evening. What is it about Iron Man 3 that uh, has you uh, obsessively building suits in your basement?
0: (laughs) Well, um, I actually picked this film because of how it ties into into Black Widow. And uh, and I think what I love about it will, will become apparent as I talk about it because I was thinking about what, you know, we talked about how the MCU was this huge experiment. You don't know if it's going to work. You know, what happens if audiences don't take to Thor or Captain America? Does the whole thing fall apart? And, like, it was a gamble for a long time. Each new kind of building block was a gamble. And even when you got to the Avengers, even after that, it was like, well, are we still going to stick with it? Because how do you go to this big event of all these characters coming together and then scale it back? You know, do audiences still want to see a solo adventure when they've, you know, been given this seven-course meal? And I think the genius of Iron Man 3, Shane Black was the right person to go to for this. Because his style and Marvel style meshed in a way that I would not have predicted. Um, he tells a story about what it's like to be solo after the Avengers. And it's essentially a story about Tony Stark with PTSD, dealing with the fact that he's just battled space monsters with super-powered gods and how that would mess you up. And it's a great way to sort of bring it back down to earth. And they take it further than that. They get rid of his suits. They strip it way back. And I, I think there's something in that that compares to where we are with Black Widow. You know, we did have a film... We had a Spider-Man film after Avengers Endgame. But really Endgame was, as the title suggests, the end of it all. You know, you had multiple franchises in these three phases, essentially a trilogy of multiple franchises. You know, it doesn't really – I can't think of anything comparable in the cinema that's done anything that big. And after that, how do you do something small? And – Black Widow, I thought, would be a real test of like, do we want to keep going with this now that we've seen every character within this universe together fighting the biggest battle they'll ever fight? Will audiences still be interested in going back to the smaller character pieces? And so the feeling I had seeing Black Widow reminded me of the feeling of, of watching Iron Man 3, where I was like, oh, they found a really clever way to do this, and I still want to spend time with these characters, and you know. The adventure continues, really. Um, so it's, it's kind of from that, from the, where it's spaced, where this smaller film is spaced within this mega conglomeration of franchises, is, is sort of where I draw the comparisons.
1: Stephen, now I've known in the past you've been a bit Iron Man three agnostic. Did you rewatch it coming into the show, or are you still going off? I did rewatch. The prosecution it. is
0: leading the. Witness.
2: I know. I'm so. <laughs> I, I feel. I've, it's such, I feel like I'm like undoing my own, you know, opening statements because you know I am very pro Marvel, but unfortunately, and I had a real giggle at this, and I'm not. I'm not going to rain on his parade. I refuse to in in this platform, but it's not. It's not my favorite Marvel. It's it's actually my. Least... No, second least favourite Marvel movie. Anyway, moving on. Uh, the, <laughs> I What I will say is I love listening to Lee love the film more than I enjoy. Than ju- Look, I, I think for me, I'm, I'll very quickly sum it up. I'm not a fan of Tony Stark. I've never found his gross misogyny particularly endearing. Gross uh, I misogyny? Know, gross misogyny. And this film tries to, like, throw a few sops to it not being that that I think Gwyneth Paltrow does a lot more work to, to mitigate than he does. I just don't find him an interesting character. He's always been my least favourite. He... I don't think the film goes far enough of that PTSD stuff. I think Black Widow did it in a far more successful way to deal with trauma. I kind of felt like it was ticked off at the start with him saying, I have PTSD, and then not really... Addressed yeah. much from there on then. Having I, panic attacks during the film?
0: I will say that that I, I, I do think, yeah, he did he does have panic attacks during the film. A when, when, yeah, Fair but I, I I think there's a way to do that. You know, I again, I don't know much about the comics. I do yeah. know something about there being a demon in a bottle storyline, which is Tony Stark as an alcoholic in the comics. I don't know anything beyond that. And they kind of referred to it in, I think, the second Iron Man. But Mm. they went as far as you can take it with a film that's meant to be an all-quadrants blockbuster that's meant to appeal to everyone. Mm. I kind of feel like they did with the PTSD as well, where this is still like a big Disney-branded film that has to appeal to everyone. And there's only so much you can do with the PTSD. I I will say in in regards to Black Widow that I feel like since 2013 – society sort of moved on to a point where we're talking about this stuff more and I feel like Black Widow is pushing that stuff as far as you can in
2: 2021. Mm. 100%. And look, what I think it's just a case of... You know, I actually really like the first Iron Man film. Mm. I really like it. It's it's one of my favourites. I think it more successfully plays with that idea of what if he is... I mean, I think he he is an alcoholic. He's an Mm. arms dealer. He is a bit of a lech. And I think the first film just more successfully plays with that idea of what if, what if an anti hero is. Yeah. I mean, the, the first one because
0: he's got to be redeemed by the end of the first film, and so there's only so much you can do with him after that. Like, you can't just keep redeeming him film after film.
2: And I get it, like you yeah. know, but I just I don't really love the whole Bond stuff where he's just like, oh, bye, you know, when he wakes up with a girl the next day. And mm. I do, I think Guy Pierce is one of the weakest villains of all. And I'm I'm just going to throw this out there. The only one other, and then I'm going to throw it back to you because I think you should say way more about why you love it. <laughs> I know why they did the Mandarin joke the it's not really a villain it's an actor i've i personally found it a bit insulting to not not the fans i'm not mm. i'm not a raven fanboy, boy but i just felt i didn't like taking making marvel a joke I, in that way
0: well again not knowing the 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 comics i had no knowledge of the character beforehand and so within the context of the film that 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 switcheroo where you suddenly find out that the Mandarin is actually uh, a drunken English actor uh, hit me really... Like, I lost it at that I thought it was you know I'd never seen anything like that in one of these films that do take themselves very seriously fair and uh, so I, I I enjoyed that a lot but I know I know fans I mean, have a connection to that Wizard character.
2: of Oz you know I mean I, exactly. I, I get it exactly I just, and Ben didn't...
0: Kingsley being a lech who doesn't
2: well and look <laughs> that is great and it, it will be inter- I mean I think they argued initially that they were worried about the racist overtones of having you know an Oriental, Orientalism yeah. Yeah. you know villain But it's actually now interesting to see that Marvel will bring the real Mandarin in in Shang-Chi, the next big blockbuster after Black Widow. So it's going to be really interesting to see how, how they address it. And I think the better way to address it is by having a predominantly Asian cast. And, and, a, and a big blockbuster.
1: I, I feel like they've kind of worked their way up to it. Like yeah. I feel like that both decisions are right for the time in yep. which they've happened. Like yep. I feel like you know a film like Shang Chi probably wasn't going to get made by no. Hollywood in 2013. No, and so short circuiting it with what they do with Kingsley and he's hilarious. He yeah. is um, uh, is the right way to go. And now they've circled. We've come to a point where a film like Shang Chi with a, a, a you know an Asian American director and a principally Asian cast can get made. And I, I think they've had their cake and eaten it too, uh, quite su- successfully. I'll just say really quickly: I love this film. Yep. Um, I'm, I am a Shane Black fan, but I think the way he he and Marvel mesh here is great. I love these. I think there's a lot, a lot of psychological interplay here in terms of the suits and him creating these shells to protect himself mm-hmm. and 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 I don't think I mean like I actually really like. Guy Pierce is the villain. I like Killian and and the extremist plan. I think it's really, um, I think it's intelligent and dangerous. I do. I will say um, something that does not get enough props either is the final action scene with all of the suits. It's one of the most inventively choreographed action scenes I've ever seen. Oh gosh, like, I hate it. I think it's just a <laughs> like, massive noise of CG. Oh really?
2: It's terrible. I think it's the but worst have you seen finale anything in like the Marvel. Uh, all I saw was like. A bajillion explosions. I thought it was literally the worst <laughs> finale of all the Marvel movies.
0: But I'd only seen a bajillion explosions <laughs> before, and so a bajillion but was like, I've never seen. Do any.
2: you know what was interesting, though? Lee, it did it, watching it again did answer my who the hell is that boy at the at the Avengers? Yeah, theater, yeah, you know, yeah. I was like, oh right, it's that guy. That's what I'm yeah. talking about. It's, yeah. It's, so it was a very belated answer to my. Yeah. Huh?
0: <laughs> she just asked me after the screening. Yeah. Uh, one thing. I've- I will. One of the other reasons I wanted to pick this film uh, tonight is that there's all this, you know, talk of, uh, of finally, you know, female superheroes getting their solo films, and uh, and one, you know, name that gets left out of the conversation is Pepper Potts in Iron Man three. Gwyneth Paltrow, it, it like with all the. Um, Oh, what's the name for Goop? With all that stuff, it's easy to forget that she's actually a really good actor. She's um, cracking in this film. I love yeah, her. love absolutely and that finale, kicks ass, and that she kind of good. saves the day. Yeah, in in that film, and I th- I think you know I'm glad I'm glad to see her. She was suited up again in Endgame, and I was glad to see that yeah. callback because I, I I don't think she gets enough credit. Uh, for being, you know, a really, really cool character in Iron Man,
2: throughout. I absolutely love her in this film. I think she's I, the one that that, yeah. that I'm like. Well, that's the bit I love most about the film. I think she, her chemistry with Downey Jr. is fantastic
1: as well. Like they're they're really good together. Yeah, this might be a bit of a controversial statement. I. Peppa Potts is my favorite Gwyneth Paltrow role. I don't think she's better in anything else than she is in these
2: movies. Not I think even when her head's in the box. Perfect. I, I do love her in Seven. I do love
0: Seven. Don't spoil Iron Man, sorry. For us. Oh. <laughs> but I yeah, I I think
1: this is her best role. I think her, yeah, I agree. she's cracking. She's like a screwball comedy lady oh, in these no. films. And she is the she's also the barometer, the audience's barometer throughout these three through films of
0: where where Tony Stark is at. He, he yeah, he gets like, away with stuck, a lot more because she's telling him off, and yeah,
1: you know. <laughs> yeah. But it's also you're seeing him do something, and your 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 usual thing would be, oh, the film is asking us to identify with this behaviour. Mm. But no, watch Pepper and how she's reacting, and yes. that's what we're meant to be identifying. Yeah, true. But also talented, Mr. Ripley.
0: Oh, if we're just yeah, going to name name uh, Gwyneth, <laughs> Paltrow Gwyneth Paltrow, Royal Tenenbaums. Well, oh, okay. there you go.
2: Let's, yeah. uh, let's she's actually take quite go. a good actor. Let's just acknowledge it.
0: Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm I'm enjoying this deep dive into Gwyneth Paltrow's career. Uh, which Gwyneth film is up next? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Iron Man three, and also. All three films are a uh, redemptive arc of Tony Stark collectively. Um, That's all I'll say. And Iron Man 3 plays beautifully into that. (laughs) Iron Man 3 is now available to to stream on Disney Plus or rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R.
0: Independently yours, Triple R.
1: 102.7. You're back with Primal Screen on Triple R with Stephen A. Russell, Lee Zachariah, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson.
0: I have a plan. You've got a plan. Yes. First of all, you're copying me from when I said I had a plan. No, I'm not. People say that all the time. It's not that unique of a thing to say. Secondly, I don't even believe you have a plan. I have part of a plan.
2: What percentage of a plan do you have?
0: You
1: don't get to ask questions after the nonsense you pulled on Nowhere. At the ends of the Galaxy was the third feature film uh, from 2014, was the third feature film directed by James Gunn. Kidnapped by aliens when he was young, Peter Quill, uh, Chris Pratt, now travels the galaxy salvaging anything of value for resale. When he comes across a silver orb, however, he gets more than he bargained for. The orb is highly desired by many, many, but none so powerful as Ronan the Accuser, played by Lee Pace. When Ronan finally acquires it, it's left to Peter, otherwise known as Star-Lord, and his newfound friends, Gamora, Drax, Groot, and Rocket, to stop him. Stephen... Pick
2: evening. Do you know what? It's quite funny. Like, even though I've now you know outed myself as a massive comic book geek, I knew nothing about the Guardians. Right? I, I'm I'm probably more a DC boy, so Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and you know my my main knowledge of 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 Marvel prior to all these films was you know the X Men predominantly, but also a little bit the Avengers. I had no knowledge of these dudes at all, and I, I absolutely adore this film. I'm, I was literally trying to, you know, hold in a guffaw even just listening to that clip. It's absolutely the sweet spot of Marvel for me in terms of, you know, the dorky found family. I think also as well because, because I'm a gay boy, right? You know, I think queer people in particular really... we We really find some kind, you know, there's something in our core about the family you find, you know, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're used to being in the closet and, you, you know, you go out to the gay bars. And I don't, this is such an incredible tangent, so I'm just going to, like, cut it short. But anyway, the found family, I really dig. And that's what's so beautiful. And again, much like you were talking about PTSD in Iron Man and when we're talking about the horrors of the Red Room in Black Widow, every one of these characters, this, you know... It's it, it, they're they're kind of like pulled from a British 70s sci-fi film, smushed with eighties glam rock, and you know each of them is an outcast. Each of them is a, kind of abandoned. They've all got you know hang-ups. You know it it does it, it actually does have a pretty queer sensibility to it, and they're comic. You know, Autonomic comic chops. Every single person in this film utterly nails it. It's it's almost a screwball comedy. It's just ridiculous the way they bounce off of each other. The the you know, the plot's almost surplus to requirement, but it is also a really fun MacGuffin. You know, Ronan I can give or take, you know, he, 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 I'm not particularly fussed that way, but
1: He looks great. He
2: Yeah, he looks fantastic, but it's not really about you know, the object or the plot. It's just this crazy ass mission as they rush around the galaxy and nobody knew them. Most people had no idea who these characters were. Like the vast majority of audiences. And now they're probably some of the most favourite, you know, characters within within the MCU. And yeah, I just I love everything about it. And especially, especially Zoe Saldana and my compatriot Karen Gillen, as, you know, <laughs> again warring sisterly siblings. Um, as as Gamora and Nebula, they've just got some cracking magic and pain. You know, it, it, Marvel really did, did manage to somehow navigate trauma within a family friendly and really funny, you know, model. It's quite. What do you what do you what do you make of the way of this 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 family? Lee?
0: I'm, I love hearing you talk about it. I'm, I'm a big fan of this film. Uh, And you're making me look at it in a whole new way. But, um, yeah, I've always enjoyed this. And, again, like you not knowing who these characters were, I was a little sceptical that when they introduce the new ones, it's like, oh, wait, I know know them all, don't I? Oh, wait, there are new ones. And so I went into this film and what, what, what was surprising is I just burst out laughing at the opening title sequence. And it's not on paper, it's not really that funny. It's Chris Pratt dancing along, kicking little creatures around, But he's got a Walkman on, on this alien planet. And it's something about, it's so rare that you're able to inject that kind of relatable silliness into such a a genre that you can't really touch. That's so far beyond what we're used to in the human experience. Something about the the melding of those incongruous elements that just pulled something out of me. I just burst out laughing. And from that point on, I was just sold.
2: It's so visually rich as well. Like sometimes Marvel can annoy me with the over use mm-hmm. of computer graphics, but it's so, it's like, you know, it really is like going into a fantastical...
0: It's very colourful. Yeah,
2: yeah. It, 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 like it's like a trip. It's like an acid trip, you know. It's just <laughs> this crazy world that they build full of bizarre creatures, and there's something almost Jim Henson about it as mm-hmm. well in the, in the in the the adventure. And it's got the kind of Goonies spirit as well, I and mean, we were talking about Donner earlier mm-hmm. on, that just... Absolutely adore it. It's, it's a feel-good film. It's the sort of one you can pop on on a Friday and watch again and again just like you did when you were a teenager and find comfort and the giggles
1: all over again. It's absolutely constantly yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, like, given how, like, trauma's a big thing in films these days and films like to wear their trauma very, you know, and kind of really uh, bit you over the head with it a bit. You know, it's like, oh, look, and, you know, character suffering. This is the most – this takes – Five characters who have all been through the most unimaginable of traumas and makes the most joyful movie possible. And that is just a testament to um, what I, I feel like what Gunn is, has done here is like these Guardians of the Gun, this and its sequel are like, to me, the platonic ideals of what these kind of movies are—it's like this is what you want from these sort of films. Is this, yeah. this, this lovely family who you just kind of get, you know, makeshift family who you, who you get behind? Great point before too about you know that that queer element of of you know queer people often find their families, you know, because they're you know often rejected by their own or have conflicted relationships with their own, and and yeah, and and. Everyone here, like I mean, it, there's there's moments in this film. I mean, I didn't think a cartoon raccoon and a <laughs> and a giant, you know, a plant would make me cry, but they do. And it's, I, I've got it. Like other than that one moment in Black Widow, the two Guardians of the Galaxy films are the only Marvel films that make me sob like a child. And it's really weird because first time I saw this, I was really snarky about it. I don't know if there was a lot of hype going in, but I was like, eh, I like this better when it's called Firefly. And seeing it again now, I. I it's like the wool is, like, removed from my eyes. I, I see it anew. Like, it is such a beautiful, open-hearted, super fun movie. Every I love the how, like, sometimes with some of these films that, or, you know, both Marvel and other com- companies, the, the humour can be sort of shoehorned in or slathered over the top of something. Everything from this comes from character. And even things that, like, it, like even, even stuff that, you know, like what the, you know, the songs he's playing, why he has the Walkman, yeah. why his named Star-Lord, all yeah. of this sort of stuff. Like so much comes from character and has this emotional resonance. And it's chock full
2: of them too. Like, you know, yeah. it's not just decor. Like there is a, there isn't a batali. I mean, for goodness sake, like Glenn Close is in it. You know, there's a battalion. Yeah.
1: Oh, John of, C. Riley.
2: you know, Benicio Del Toro, and Howard the Duck. Isn't so, I know, Howard the Duck literally gets, you know, he comes I'm glad back, he's getting work again. Yeah, I I'm so happy for him. And you know what? The second film is really underrated. It's such a beautiful film about you know paternity and and are we defined by by you know who our, our our parents are and what happens if they don't really want us you know does that then mean that we're worthless and, and it's a really beautiful film about again finding your way and standing on your own feet with the help of your friends and actually not needing your your total egomaniac, you know, planet sized monstrous father.
1: <laughs> <involved>. <laughs> and again, it's that thing. It's like, you know, like finding the family that your, your blood family wanting yeah. and finding your true self with your your, your makeshift family. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, and also realizing people who, you're know, seeing people in you who have been for you, there for you the whole time who you've never really realized. And they're crashing um, at each other. And that's also part of the joy. You know, the families <laughs> fight and it's great. Yeah. And everything that comes out of Dave Batista's mouth in this film is just pure gold. Uh, yeah. so, like yeah. the, the whole scene when he's like thinks he's invisible is just <laughs>
2: uh, actually. You, you, if you want to hear snort laughs, just come to my house and watch me watch that scene. Oh, I have. I was invisible. You didn't see me. I was. <laughs> <then>. Goodness me.
1: <laughs> I just just talking about these films makes me want to throw them on again. Like yeah. they're kind of yeah. They're like. These are my yeah, like I said, platonic ideal of what a Marvel movie is. These these two films, I think they're they're just beautiful and and yeah and 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 just and the soundtrack of bangers does not hurt. It really doesn't. It's great. So Guardians of the Galaxy is and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, if you want to check out that as well, are now available to stream on Disney Plus or to rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon. You're listening to Primal Screen on RRR. Triple R.
0: Triple R.
1: You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Lee Zachariah, Stephen A. Russell, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On Primal Screen Spotlight on Marvel Studios, we reviewed Black Widow, now screening in cinemas or available on uh, Disney Plus Premiere Access, and uh, Iron Man 3 and Guardians of the Galaxy, both available to stream on Disney Plus or rent or buy via YouTube, iTunes. Next week, I'll be joined by two first-time special guest guest, uh, special guest hosts to uh, go deep into the Netflix uh, YA horror trilogy, *Fear Street*. Uh, We'll be reviewing all three films uh, in uh, the R.L. Stein adaptation series. Thank you, Lee and Stephen, for joining me tonight. Been a a pleasure.
0: Thank you for having me. Yeah, and Stephen. Oh, well. Both (laughs) both of us. I speak for him now. Thanks. (laughs) A huge thank you. There it is. There it is. (laughs) is.
2: Couldn't go out. Just had to. (laughs) One more time for the
1: fans. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, to Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance for our show.
0: Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the R website.